Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizons Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF. Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. All right, all gentlemen. Right. Welcome, everyone. Yeah. Welcome, Jim. Like Jim, Jim Thank you. Yeah. Great to be here. It sounds like you're riffing on some Dr. Dre beats in your intro there. <laughs> 100% nice of the time. Yeah, I love right. it. I like it. I like it. I'm happy already. Got to get the chronic. Got to get the chronic. That's on. Right. Are we going to continue the sci-fi before we go into the investing as we were doing offline? Or are we going to? Oh, oh, definitely. Let's, let's jump into Dr. Dre. So Dr. Dre is, in my opinion, probably the most gifted producer in all of hip hop. And I love it when he does his own stuff. And, and that really reminded me of him. Anyway, so good for yeah. you guys. Good for you. <laughs> well, welcome, yeah. Jim. Thanks for thank you. And thank you for joining us. And and uh, I'll just start with a few comments. It is, and uh, as we get started, I want to remind everybody: Riffs is a wide ranging exploration of ideas and thoughts, and nothing here should be considered investment advice. So, if you're going to do something that stems from this, check with a professional, do your own research, uh, take uh, take some time, and all your investment decisions. And uh, with that, let's let's roll. Yeah, well, it's hardly going to be any trouble in this broadcast since we're not even going to get into investing. It's going to be all sci-fi. We are research there too. You know, I, I actually, I actually did that on a podcast that I haven't released yet. I'm not sure if I'm going to release it. So it was a well-known investment guy, and literally, we talked for like an hour and twenty minutes, and and then I realized that we hadn't talked about investing once. <laughs> Oh, you absolutely must release it. <laughs> I got to make sure it's cool with him. Yeah, yeah. So we were all just saying how excited we were with the new Dune series and how the uh, Asimov Foundation series makes such a great 
HBO miniseries. Um, did you ever read any of the Wheel of Time series by Robert Jordan? So that's we're, we're off the the sci-fi and now into sort of yeah, high yeah, fantasy. No, but no, I w- I was more strictly a kind of a sci-fi guy, right. and I particularly like sci-fi where the where the author tried to make some of the advances consistent with the rules of physics. Because I'm also like a big quantum physics guy, and and the ones where they could make them like tenable right that that they could actually potentially if we gained a bunch of new new knowledge come up with uh i think that that those are super cool and if you're not going to do that then go wild then you know then just then have different laws of physics have different everything but if you're going to do the physics man that makes sci-fi go to sci-fact and i think it's pretty cool i mean so that explains it yeah, we've got we've got the I don't wear an Apple Watch uh, because it's my one anachronism because um, I love tech. But uh, for whatever reason, I'm, I like regular watches. But I was going to pretend if this was an Apple Watch, right? Dick Tracy, that's where we got that from. Right, right. So that explains it because I, I you lo- you always quote Douglas Adams and um, love him. I was I. That's obviously not you. You were just saying how you love sort of hard sci-fi, right? Like that really deals with science fact. And Douglas Adams is right at the opposite ends of the spectrum, right? Robert Anton Wilson, sort of the same kind of more philosophical. Um, well, certainly Robert Anton Wilson, and then Douglas Adams was just kind of silly, right? Which sort of so, is the other so, end of the continuum. So my my position on on uh, Adams, who died tragically young. He was in his 50s when he died of a heart attack. And the first thing that amazes me is that he got all that done. Like, So The Hitchhiker's Guide is just one of his many, many books. He's got other books that are fabulous. I've read them all. But the minute you understand that Douglas Adams is not a comedic sci-fi writer, but rather he is a pretty profound philosopher, when you change your mindset, when you reframe, him as a philosopher as opposed to a comedic sci-fi guy the guy is right up there with Lao Tzu in my opinion mm, <laughs> he's, wow, he's, got a, he's got right. he's, he's got he's got a very very uh switched on if you will a very enlightened view of the the whole crazy mess we call life and and he's funny like I think that those two combinations are gold if you yeah, can it's really like, sardonic tone yeah if you can't, if you can't be funny about like really tragic things, I, you know, you're not going to make it in that kind of, but people who are, the world's their Robert, oyster. Yeah. And Robert Anton Wilson has that same sort of attitude, right? And he, he sort of mixes in the raunchy too, which, which makes it a little bit more colorful. And uh, so, yeah. So I discovered Robert, I had a friend, I read an essay uh, by my friend, Dan Jeffries, and it was this is like three years ago, and he had put it up on Twitter. Somebody had reposted it on Twitter, and like I'm reading this thing, and I'm like, like I'm saying, I this is I, I did I write this under a pseudonym? <laughs> uh, and 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 so I immediately. So one of my big things about social media is I think social media is amazing, but you got to take it to the second and third steps, i.e. You have to be ruthless in your curation of your account. I don't block people. I mute them. 
uh, because for the most part, they're just idiots and, and they don't really mean any harm, but they're, they're saying stupid things and everything. And so I, I mute them. Um, and when you do that, you decrease the noise, which, you know, Twitter is a big noise machine and mm -hmm. increase the signal anyway. So, but then after that, if you really like somebody, I believe very deeply, you got to meet them. If you can, pre-pandemic, I would actually meet them physically. Right. Um, uh, after, during the pandemic, I called them and Zoomed with them. That's the key, in my opinion. So anyway, I read Dan's essay, which I loved. Uh, Rick and Morty describe the universe, and it's Jed McKenna and all these guys. And so I tracked him down. I'm like, you're a genius. I want to talk to you about this. And he made kind of an offhand comment. He's like, well, yeah, have you read any Robert Anton Wilson? I'm like, no, who's that? <laughs> so literally, I'm kind of an all or nothing kind of guy. And, and so I got every one of his books. And I read every single one of his books. I read several of them twice. This guy, I mean, he's, he's 60 years ahead of his time. And, and you, you know, half the stuff that he says turns out to be wildly inaccurate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, then the, but then the really interesting stuff that he's talking about, especially tech stuff, and especially um, what we learn about ourselves and culture and everything, man, bang on. Yeah. And so, yeah, he's like that, though. He's very, very funny. And, and that, raunchy. That, and raunchy. <laughs> funny works with me, though. If you're really yeah, super smart and you're also funny, you're okay in my book. So he I, was one of those. I remember my mom gave me this book when I was 15 or 16 called Einstein's Dreams. I went through a real quantum physics phase, too. And she gave me this book called Einstein's Dreams. And it's you, you're nodding, so I think you're familiar with it. But you, Yeah. The, they create each chapter is is an, a vision of how the world would work if time moved in a completely different way than it does yeah. like the linear time and then the next book she gave me was Schrodinger's Cat by Robert Anton Wilson and I thought she you know she thought wow you know this sci-fi philosophy <laughs> psychology but it's all those things but it's also raunchy as hell very like, very yeah. raunchy <laughs> mom did not read ahead no she, she you that, yeah, that was unfiltered for sure <laughs> but uh well good for yeah. you though you're kind of like I, I have the coolest mom in the world <laughs> absolutely yeah well she my mother was the um president of planned parenthood for oh, many well, years there, it, there yeah, you so go. she was definitely progressive minded anyway but um anyway good i'm sure her. we could god, chat about god bless her god bless her yeah, definitely. Um, so, you know, we, this was supposed to be a uh, an investing podcast. I guess we could go on about sci-fi and, and reading forever. But um, um, I did want to ask. So you're, so you're currently, actually, before I get into this, I want to know, have you ever been in the same room as Dave Natick? Because I was... Um, <laughs> I was listening to to some of your Infinite Loops podcasts, and I was, and then I was listening to Dave Nadig like just immediately after. I was like, I swear they they are they the same person because you guys have the same tone of voice, the same enthusiasms, very similar mannerisms, like similar interests, sci fi nerdiness. To, to has be anyone honest, ever told you that before? No, that's the first time, uh, which is great. Um, I love Dave. He's a great guy. Um, we have never been in the same room, actually. However, he is curing that because he didn't realize that our offices were in Stamford. So I live in Greenwich. My office is in Stamford, 
like not even a 10 minute drive from here. Um, and it's in a historic building, which is actually beautiful. Uh, like 1913, it was built brick, gorgeous, like the inside. Now, obviously we upgraded everything. Uh, but he's like, I had no idea you, uh, he goes, for some reason, I thought you were in Philly. And he goes, you're within driving distance. And I'm like, come on for lunch, baby. You can come. So we'll take He'll a come. picture. Yeah, I know he will. <laughs> what, what, what we'll do, though, is we'll take a picture of us together and we'll put it up on Twitter. So all, yep. all the people who were like, oh, damn it, they aren't the same guy. Another, that'll that'll another, bust my conspiracy an, for sure. Another conspiracy done in. Yeah, yeah. We play Dungeons and Dragons got, with him every Wednesday, one. so. Um, I got one callback though. How do you, how do you balance meeting your heroes with with your pursuit of meeting your heroes? How have you kind of, how, how have you, how has that worked out for you in pursuing those that you you have sort of great fawned question. over? You know, wh wh what's your experience been in real life with balancing that? Well, so there's a great line from an English comedy. I can't remember which one, but the 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 line was. No man is a hero to his valet. <laughs> and, and, and so, so what happens is like, I got to think will, about that for a minute. Yeah, you need to. <laughs> so I was just, I heard, I heard a young man in India, his name's Batsell. And like, you know, later after I hired him, he's like, you do know that you're my hero and that I can't believe I'm doing this zoom with you. And I went, I won't be your hero for much longer. <laughs> right. Now and, I can. And, yeah. So so listen, I, I I honestly I don't I don't look at them as heroes, to be honest. I mean, it, if you want heroes, uh Professor Feynman is a hero of mine. Voltaire is a hero of right. mine. Um but I look at them as like super interesting people and I, I am just lucky enough to be able to like, when I ask them to talk to me for an hour and a half, they will. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, the whole reason behind infinite loops was honestly, so that I could talk to people who I find fascinating because I thought other people might too. Yeah. And, and so, um, I love it. I, I love it. And some of them turn into good friends that we end up talking a lot. Um, like I mentioned, Dan Jeffries, uh, who wrote the, uh, the thing about Rick and Morty and Jed McKenna explain the universe, which is very good. Um, and then, uh, others, we just maintain a very good email DM kind of relationship. Uh, you know, uh, Tim Urban and, uh, Alex Danko, Alex Danko is now going to be a permanent revolving guest because this guy is literally so smart that he can talk extemporaneously about any topic. I'm going to do this as one of the podcasts, by the way. I hope he doesn't see this. Uh, because <laughs> Don't what, I'm gonna do, what, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to randomly select, I don't know, five really hard topics. And my bet, and my bet is on him. He'll be able to extemporaneously with no preparation expand on them for 30 minutes and what he says will be right. <laughs> so guys like him, I mean, I could, ha I, I love guys like Tim Urban's another guy. Wait, but why? Um, I yep. love these super curious people. Yeah. And so uh, uh, another uh, that I'm going to have on is Rory Sutherland, who wrote um, 
the great marketing book about, um, uh, you know, looking at Mark and blanking on the title. Um, but I like interesting people. So you guys you are about, I don't know, uh, 45 top uh, episodes deep into the infinitely loops and you range across the board in terms of uh, topics and interest. What's so, what are some of the topics that are most exciting, interesting to you at this point, uh, both in investing and just kind of generally uh, across the uh, the global zeitgeist? So before I answer your question, Rory's book is Alchemy. Um, and uh, it's a great book. I highly recommend it. Um, I'm having him on again next week because uh, he's got a new thing out. As to your question, um, so I am fascinated by people who do really deep research. And it doesn't have to be in markets per se. Um, I'm obviously fascinated by those folks too. Um, and like Dan Rasmussen, we have him coming up. Um, our our very own Jesse Livermore, who's uh, yeah, anonymous. That, that was a great the guy. Is, the guy's a genius. He's written three papers for us that I had a good friend at a big uh, investment bank call me and say he got a call from a professor at his university, uh, which is very prestigious, who said that paper could have been his PhD thesis and he would have gotten his PhD. So, so things like that are really fascinating to me. I love super smart people who have non-canned answers to things. I love people who admit when they don't know, because that, I mean, if I have a superpower, maybe that's it. It's like, I'm very willing to say, I don't know. I don't know. Tell me. That's why I started the podcast, honestly. So all these things that I was curious about, smart people would tell me the answer or, or I had an answer that gave me a chance to actually go out and, and look into it. So I love those kind of deep dives. Um, but, you know, we've done other podcasts about things that um, have like really resonated with me. We did uh, uh, our, uh, Chris Arnady, the author of Dignity, about what he calls the back row kids in America. And frankly, that was something I knew nothing about. And neither did he. He was a he was a trader at a Wall Street firm, did very, very well. And then he decided that he was not doing what he needed to do. So he went out, he left his job, he got a camera, and he went to like the worst parts of town everywhere in America. And instead of finding like horrible things, they were there, of course, but he found people who he was able to talk to in a way that I, I just think it's an amazing project because these people, we, we dismiss them as caricatures and they're not caricatures, they're real people and we don't treat them so well and we need to get better at that. And so that was something I didn't know much about um, that really opened my eyes uh, in terms of, of that. Um, so I, you know, almost I try to approach each podcast with like a list of the things that I really think not only do I want to know, but, you know, I've talked to friends and things and, and, and they'll say, hey, what do you think about X, Y or Z? Right. And I'll say, yeah, I don't know. Like a big topic these days is so where where is the world going in terms of everything, not just our field? 
And I have a very specific point of view about this. I think we're in a, what I call a great reshuffling. And I think we're moving into the digital world away from the physical world. And the properties and the talent uh, skill set uh, for those worlds is very different. So, you know, physical world, you, you manipulate things, right? You build things. Um, physical world, you're a symbol manipulator. I'm a symbol. Everyone here is a symbol manip manipulator, right? So if you're good at that, you're going you're gonna to get really good at digital. Um, you know, linear thought versus nonlinear thought. If you're able to think in a nonlinear fashion, which, by the way, a lot of people are not able to do, and it's not their fault. It's the way that they were taught. It's the way that they did their job. It's the way, and they were good at their jobs. So come naturally, right? It's something that yeah. is learned. I don't think we are we're, we're wired to think anything other than linearly. But then, it, if you're exposed to that kind of thinking, it, I, I think it's more of a learned skill. And, that, and it's the same thing with deterministic versus probabilistic thinking. So I had to train myself. It took me six years to do this because it's not natural. It's not natural to think in probabilities. It's amazingly good once you get good at it. But so I also think, and I just had this experience happen to me, we've gone from a world where credentialism was the thing. So I listen. My three children, one went to Yale, two went to Notre Dame. So they got really good credentials. But I think that the truth of the matter is we are moving from a world where that imperator of a Yale or, or a Notre Dame or you know a big publisher is losing power fast. And, and so we go, we're going from my degree suggests competence to a living, here is my body of work that is continually updated and you have access to it on the internet. So we're going to a living proof of work ongoing from a static resume. And I gotta tell you, and the final thing there is geography, time, space, meaningless in this new world. The guy I hired is in Bangalore, India. And, and this kid, Already, he's been working for me for under two weeks, and he's already like, he's got the audios, he's got, you know, he's got it's a, a new website, he's got like all these things I hadn't even thought of, and I just did a Zoom with him today, and he's like, yeah, Jim, what we really need to do is we need to take all of the transcripts and put them on a Substack and put them and email them to people, and you know, and I'm just like, yeah, great. What he said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but see, the deal is we're all going to get access to this, this, this group of people. And importantly, they get access to us. Before, like 10 years ago, Batzel, who's really smart, really with it, he was bounded by his geography. He, you know, he, he, he couldn't make the most of his talents because his geography bound him. That's gone. That's gone. And, and, and so he's really good at a bunch of different stuff. Perfect for me. And so it's, it's a win-win. As far as I'm concerned, it's a win-win. Now, listen, there'll be lots of dislocations because of this. And so I think we need to think about fixing certain things, right? We have to be open-minded because a lot of people through no fault of their own will not do so well in this new world. Other people will kill it. 
Because the final thing about this new world, at least that I'm thinking about now, is the leverage it gives you. And I'm not talking about financial leverage. The leverage of the digital world is breathtaking. Yeah, human capital leverage. You you have you know disaggregated all the the intermediation to having your your expertise broadcast to the world in whatever specific domain you happen to be ha- have skills at. Amazing leverage, right? Like Metcalf, yeah. Metcalf law style leverage. Yeah, yeah. I so tell you, what, the, yeah. How do we, how do we adjust the education platform in order to sort of nurture? probabilistic thinking and nurture the, the the items that we've talked about for the digital world for those that are coming up through the system obviously there'll, there'll be those who have a natural proclivity there'll be those that have some luck that trips them in that direction how do on mass do we do we sort of lift the average of the entire population i know that's a that's a that, big that, one. Yeah, that's a. <laughs> that's where my mind goes. I'm like, yes, you're right. Okay, so now what I, we do as a society? You're just, giving other, Jim a other, chance to say, I don't know. I mean, this I, is I, 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 other than that, yeah, no, I don't know. I, I think about that a lot, actually. And listen, we have essentially a 19th century educational system in this country. And most people don't know that the educational uh, uh, public schools in this country were designed by industrialists to get people used to sitting in a room for eight hours doing nothing. Yep. And because that's the job they were going to go into at the factory, and they needed to be trained for that. Follow so, rules, linear thinking, exactly. linear processing. Yep. Don't you dare think about thinking for yourself. And so, I just think I, I think that. The inertia, right? So Max Planck said, said uh, uh, progress happens one funeral at a time. And, and, and I think that the inertia, like, just think about it from the point of view. Like, I think Yale is an amazing school. My daughter got an amazing education there. I know lots of people up there. Swenson, unfortunately, just died at a very young age. Yeah, but look at sad. that guy. That guy killed it in the endowment. So lots of smart people. And I think whenever you put lots of smart people in the same place, interesting things happen. But the problem is, how do you, I mean, how do you, like, I guess let's reframe it. If I was running like a, a community college, I would go, okay, guys, the world is now our oyster. Because you know what? All this shit over here, we're getting rid of it. It's all bullshit. We're going to offer Yep, we're going to go online. We're going to teach people how to do the types of things that they're going to be good at. In we're going to give them writing classes. We're going to give them communication classes. We're going to teach them how to become digital natives. We're going to give them access to all those tools because you know there are a lot of tools that people don't know about. And it's like I just learned this from Vatsal. He's like, oh yeah, Jim. There's blah, blah, blah. you know he gave me he gave me this list of ten things, and I'm like, okay. <laughs> I'm an old, but that's very impressive. Kids don't know it. And, and so I, I believe, like all complex adaptive systems, the change is going to come from the bottom, not from the top down. It's going to come from the bottom up. And it's, you already see it happening, right? And so it, it takes a special person to like take on their own education be it you know a he or a she or or whatever in terms of like doing it all yourself most people need some assistance need some guidance 
Uh, and, and that's where these kind of like, honestly, you know, community style colleges, what do they have to lose? Nothing. And, Especially and, because of the state of where universities lie, right? Because the signaling mechanism that, you know, higher education, especially in the U.S., provides, there's a lot of networking and there's a lot of uh, bona fides going to, to a great school. But it's become so inaccessible to a large chunk of the population. Or if they do get access, that they're laden with so much debt that chases them for the rest of their life. Whereas the Internet now provides you with, you know, access to pretty much the entire uh, domain of knowledge of humanity. It's more of a question of frameworking, right? So I wonder, what do you think about the role of kind of universities into the next few decades into this framework of, of, of maybe providing a cheaper education, but more, more uh, you know, broader for, for a larger chunk of population? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I, uh, was in uh, my daughter and my son-in-law are staying here and I'm getting a chance to know my latest grandchild who is a six-month-old girl and a delight uh, but we were talking about it the other day they're both Yale grads and I I kind of like I have no problem asking people radical questions and I'm like why does Yale charge anyone why does it why is it Yale open to the smartest people on the planet that Yale gets to pick and and sure, let's get some kids from. Uh, let's intentionally pull kids out of disadvantaged environments. Let's intentionally find that smart kid that's in really shitty circumstances, and their endowment could pay for it all. And well, they, and, they, they uh, kind of do that. I mean, the challenge is it becomes before that, right? So so you so all of those colleges, the, the NESCAC largely, and the Ivies are. Uh, needs-based finance, financial, financial assistance. So if you get in, then finance will not be what stops you from attending. The, the challenge is that if you get in, right, it's that how do we get the, how do we identify those smart kids, nurture them through their high school years so they don't go off on a different track? Yeah, but the kid from Bangalore never gets a chance to apply. Right. Agreed. Well, nor does the kid, right? the kid from the inner city in, in, yeah, sure. in New York, he, he, yeah. he or she never gets a chance either. If we were really to look at that, that person that would were able to, under those circumstances, maintain a GPA in order to qualify, it's a really tough set of circumstances. Go ahead, Jim. So I, I, I you're right, and but I, I would suggest to you that you're looking at this as a from a top down perspective. Right. So, so I think it's going to be emergent. Yeah. yeah. I think the solution is to put, let's, let's stick with Yale or Notre Dame. They have the resources to put a ton of stuff online and monitor it. You know, who's doing really great things and then say, Oh my God, look, this is, this is coming from the Bronx. Let's look into this person. Oh, this is coming from Bangalore. Bangalore. Let's look into this person. Because the tools are there and are very monitorable, right? Put that stuff out there. The, the worst thing that happens, yeah. So, so the worst thing that happens is a bunch of kids get educated, which is an awesome thing. But the best thing that happens is Yale like has a, makes a big deal about it. people are very drawn to ceremony and and to achievement and to recognition of achievement. I mean, like, say what you want about him. Reagan 
so I was a kid when he got elected president. Before he got elected president, I, I don't think the mood of this country was any worse off. I mean, even today, people, Americans were bummed out. I mean, literally, like our world was going away. We made shitty cars. The Arabs were embargoing our gas, and we didn't. It seemed like we didn't control anything. And then all of a sudden, Reagan gets elected, and the guy was, you know, Mister Sunny Disposition. But he did something that was really genius, in my opinion. He, he probably wasn't his idea. He surrounded himself by smart people, which is that's kind of like lesson A if you want to get stuff done, and don't and intentionally make sure they're smarter than you are, uh, and and then let them be smart. Anyway, so what he did was this whole hero. During his State of the Union, he started this thing where it first started with one, then it was like two, and then it kind of like exponentially grew. But he picked people intentionally, nobody that anybody knew. So a cop who saved a, a six-year-old girl from drowning, uh, an army guy who jumped on a grenade and saved all of his buddies and didn't die, right? I mean, these were like, my mother was like weeping when he's acknowledging these people. And and his other genius, and this is also kind of one of the texts or, or verses in my favorite Tao uh, Te Ching. What Reagan did was, there's a great quote that I just had up, Eleanor Roosevelt had it, and it was, a great leader makes people believe in him. The greatest leaders make people believe in themselves. And that's what Reagan did with these people, because what he did was he always said, and, and I'm not a Republican or a Democrat, I'm a registered independent and I have voted for and given money to both parties. Um, and, but but his, his, manic, his magic was that the guy, when he died, I was in California and we were listening to the commentary on NPR. We were going for a, a long drive to a friend's house. And, and one of the things that they noted was that Reagan never took credit for anything. When he was making speeches, Reagan always said, the American people created 150 million new jobs. The American people did this. The American people did that. And literally, you watch this country like turn on a dime. And, you know, Wall Street, 82, I was on my honeymoon. I was 22 years old and I'm in Europe and I'm reading about the this runaway bull market. Well, back in those days, it was up 22 points. Oh, my God. <laughs> For the Dow. But the, the thing is, a lot of this stuff is perception, right? So getting back to Yale, getting back to Notre Dame, getting back to the Harvards of the world, put that stuff out there. Their imperator means a ton. If, if you've got MIT or Yale or any of those, Notre Dame, any of those hallmarks of these great universities, people are going to just naturally be swayed by that. Make it free. Give, it, give the tools to everyone, access to everybody. Highlight it to those kids in those neighborhoods. Send out emissaries, make sure those kids are using it, and then pick from them. And when you pick from them, make a big deal about it. Bring them to Yale, bring them to Harvard, bring them to MIT, let them bask, get the media, get Twitter going on them, get 
everything going on them. And that stuff will work, I think. It'll take so time. I love that. I love that. But what's the, what is the economic model for that, right? Like how how does Yale um, commercialize that in order to to fund the institution of Yale, right? So you're funding profs and you're funding all, all the building maintenance and all of the costs of, of the organization, right? I mean, I just, I, I love the model. And I mean, it's one of these weird situations where every, everyone wins, but no individuals win. You know what I mean? At least not sort yeah. of in the short term. So, so how, how do you cross that chasm? Well, so I would cross it in a couple of ways. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Yale's endowment is sufficient to allow every kid at Yale to go there full boat, no debt for free. Okay. They could yep. do that right, right now. Um, it, you, you create a virtuous flywheel. If you're, if you're the first of the, or among the first of those name brand institutions with massive endowments, Yale, Harvard, Notre Dame's even got a, like, I think $14 billion endowment. But get there early, and guess what? All of your alumni are going to make massive donations. They're going to want to be associated with you and with that program. Stanford, another great, uh, uh, you know, get all the Silicon Valley guys who got a degree from Stanford. I, I'll tell you what, they'd be fighting over funding that. Yeah, the page diploma of computer science from Stanford. And yeah, you're right. Talk about impact investing, right? Talk, talk about a real impact in in a broader and, but this, I mean, the education would definitely need to go online in order to provide this to a much broader uh, uh, audience of people, especially given the physical limitations of amphitheaters and auditoriums. But I, I wonder if not only the, the access, but also the curriculum itself. I mean, back to the point about, you know, having knowledge accessible to everyone. Isn't there an argument now that we should be teaching people how to think and kind of mental models and, and, and things like that, as opposed to teaching them, uh, you know, geography, history? I mean, obviously, all those things are important and everyone should be reading those as it is. But I think teaching people how to think and mental models, which was a concept that I didn't really know when I was going to college and I learned later on in my career, which I thought was such a and back to the point about learning how to think exponentially and probabilistically as opposed to linearly and deterministically. So I think that's kind of a I, I wonder how far universities are really are to, to sort of a revolution in that direction. That's a great observation. And um, so Vermont Royster was like an old school editor of the Wall Street Journal and he, he wrote a piece like when I was a kid and he was old when I was a kid. Um, he's since died, but he was a very thoughtful writer and he was talking about the curriculum of his public grade school where he went in Vermont, <laughs> Vermont Royster. Um, but you wouldn't believe it. Latin, Greek, logic, uh, you know, all of these things that, taught you how to think and and then we dumbed it down significantly for a variety of reasons some reasons i think are reasonably good and and other reasons were not good but so i'm with you on the teaching kids how to think 
I also think that, you know, like just basics, basic geography, I think it's kind of embarrassing when, you know, they do these tests and your average American can't point at where Great Britain is on a map. That's embarrassing. And, and okay, I had a, a guy in Switzerland, uh, was uh, he was a driver and was driving us around and he was really excited because he was leaving it was his last job and he was retiring and i was lamenting the fact that i didn't speak another language and and remarking on the fact that he had spoken four separate languages in just a 50 minute car ride uh and he goes but that's the very point he said you can get on a plane in america travel for seven hours to the other coast and still be speaking english he goes, we can't go 20 minutes in a car without speaking another language. And he goes, so it's just the practicality. And I had brought up this issue of Americans not knowing geography. And he's like, well, you're America. <laughs> I mean, he's like, yes, you're right. Yes, theoretically, you're right. They should know that. But I guess some of those basics, you, that stuff should be in grade school, honestly. That shouldn't be in high school or college. If, 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 you're, if you're in college and you can't point out where Washington, D.C. is, we have failed you as a student, right? But it's, as more, I think, it's more about sort of cosmopolitanism, right? It's more about having a general awareness of all the different potential and opportunities. And, you know, you, you learn about places not because they exist, but because interesting, interesting things happen there that we can – we can derive lessons from or that may provide a direction of interest for you to explore, right? Maybe you've got a passion about something and and something central about that passion exists in Washington or exists in Paris or and so now your mind is open to something that new that you can you can go and explore there, right? They're relevant not because they exist in a different place, but because of what makes them special and unique, right? The ideas and the and some of the elements of history and people, but it's not the dates. It's not the, it's not the, the names of the people so much as it's the ideas that they um, espoused and propagated and, and you know, the, the lines of reason and exploration and technology and philosophy, et cetera, that, why they that emerged from that, right? That's why they matter. And I think what's so unfortunate about the classic way of, of teaching philosophy or or political science or history or what have you is it's they frame it as dates and places and 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 names instead of ideas and 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 conflict and and lessons and you know um frameworks that that you know there's an emergence of lessons from all of the mistakes that these people people made and now you're able to to piece that together into a framework that that allows you at each increment of learning to know more about yourself and the world and how you can best interact with it, right? I think if we do a better job of 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 that type of education, I think we'll be way better off. And what strikes me is that the vision of the online learning university or like the distributed knowledge um, concept, I love it. What may be missing there is the interaction how do you how do you scale the interaction of a small classroom of of pre-masters or pre-PhD students who are really digging into a concept and iterating on that in in real time, right? How yeah. do you, I don't know how you scale that dimension of 
so, the learning process? So um, what I would say as you were going on there was it started like a, uh, it sounded like a startup pitch to me, which is a good thing. In other words, you, you just were pitching something that doesn't exist right now. And it seems to me, given the quality of our country, uh, that there should be 12 different founders working on that very thing that you just described. Right. Because I think you're right. I think there's obviously a gap and a need there that is not being addressed. It seems like it seems like a pretty cool startup idea to me. And and so I think that's where you're going to find a lot of this new thinking from. Because you know, people get set in their ways in 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 they get in thinking ruts. They become dogmatic and I view dogmatism as the same as brain death. If you're not thinking about something, you you not giving it any attention, and therefore you turn into a confirmation bias machine. And actually, when you look at how our brains work, you can prove that that is true. We have a thing called the reticular activating system, and what it does is it it dampens things that are either repetitive or things you don't want to see. <laughs> That's the part that they never really tell you about. So the reticular activating system dampens all of the information. If, you're, if you've decided you are right on whatever, right? I am right and I am certain X, Y, Z. You're not going to look for any information that challenges X, Y, Z. Your reticular activating system is going to dampen any of that information so that you are literally blind to it. You, this isn't intentional. None of this is intentional. And and your brain will kick that over what they call the prover. I wrote a, a, a thread on Twitter about this. When you kick it over to the prover, the prover uses the reticular activating system and highlights everything that proves your priors, right? So when you, you know, back to the, the uh, Max Planck comment about uh, progress happening one funeral at a time. When you look at um, not just science, and obviously if we're looking at science, we're looking at or should be looking at the most disciplined method methodology for testing hypotheses, right? Mm -hmm. And even in, in science, they had all of these prejudices, they had all of these things that are very obvious. When Copernicus came out with his heliocentric version of the universe, it took two centuries until the majority of scientists believed what he said. Um, art, the Impressionists. Do you know who named the Impressionists? The Academy of Art in Paris that hated them and, and gave them that name as an insult. <laughs> it was, oh, you know, this is just sort of an impression like maybe a child. And, and, and then, like, everyone said they were horrible. Vincent van Gogh, he's a finger painter. Oh, right? my God. So all I can so, think of is how do I, incite, how do I incentivize you to use that French accent again? No, that was brilliant. I don't know where you got that. Jim, Jams, Jams, I, I, I don't know I, where you got are you that. There, you, are you there? I travel greatly. And sometimes... <laughs> 
I can slip into it, you know. Um, but but the fact is, it's true. All of that stuff was the impressionists were named impressionists to deride them and right, it was derogatory. Them. Right. It was derogatory, and so you know, I I can't expect our advanced educational systems and all of the administrators and all of the middleweight deadwood. To be like what you can't convince a man of, or woman of something where their paycheck uh, accounts Upton for them Sinclair. not understanding Upton it, Mister Upton Sinclair. Yeah, and so. so, and so, the way around this, in my opinion, is again complex adaptive system. Change happens from here. Entrepreneurs should be all over this shit. They should be like, that's a really good idea. You know, anyone who just listened to you, an entrepreneur out there, is like. That's a really good idea. And then come up with ways to get Yale involved. Come up with ways to get Notre Dame involved, MIT involved, all of those things. And what you'll see is a, a gradual evolution. But the, the, the other problem is most people confuse learning with completing a set of courses and getting some certificate memorizing yeah with credentializing yeah. with credentializing yeah. and that isn't what learning is learning should be a lifelong endeavor and so i think the better question at least for our current age or the one we're going into is how can we make the biggest majority of people curious and and to like use the tools available to them and I don't have the answer to that. I wish I did. But you're optimistic I, that will that that entrepreneurs or or that people will be some people will be sufficiently motivated and have the talent and um you know passion to see that through. And what what strikes me as I as I hear you or 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 you know read your tweets on Twitter and I listen to your infinite loops and and I you know, I've, I've had occasion to, to read your books, but, but this mosaic appears and one central characteristic that always jumps out at me about you is this sense of optimism. And I'm wondering, cause I've struggled to, to find that, that kernel of optimism over the last, since really since 2008, I, I've become really pessimistic, but you've seemed to maintain this sense of optimism. What, where does that come from? So, so I just reread the book, The Beginnings of Infinity, uh, Searching for Better Explanations. And it's by uh, David Deutsch, who is a, uh, a, a, a quantum physics professor at Oxford. And I read it when it first came out in, I think, 11 or 12, so t 10 years ago. Um, and then I decided I was going to reread it because I remembered at the time he had made a killer argument for why we need optimism to triumph over pessimism and that it is vital to our, our advancement as a civilization that that be the case. And, and I was really taken with his book. I highly recommend it. Um, it's, it's not, it's not like a super easy read, <laughs> but if you only, here's another thing. Just read the chapter on optimism versus pessimism, and you will have gotten 95% of the benefit of that book because he demolishes the idea about pessimists because pessimists always are 
basing things, thinking that they know what's going to be discovered 10 years from now. And he gives this wonderful example. He says, were scientists in 1900 arguing the merits of the internet and nuclear power? And he goes, no, they weren't thinking of it at all because it hadn't been invented. And, and so pessimists rely on there being no new ideas. And listen, just in our short life periods, right? America, when I was born in 1960 to America today, unbelievable advancement, unbelievable change. Yes, there are all sorts of problems still, but the, the progress, and then look at the world, look at the people who are emerging from poverty, billions and billions of people in just the last 20 years emerged from poverty. It, look at the new vaccine with it, the M, uh, RNA. People don't understand that that was impossible without computer intelligence, right? A, we didn't know how to fold protein. So if, let's, let's, let's say COVID happened in 1970. We're fucked because we can't fold protein. We would have to do an old style vaccine that included some of the virus, right? Like the one for polio and all that. And then we would have to test it on a human population set like they did with polio. And guess what? They had to change that polio vaccine quite a bit. Well, with the new thing, A, it doesn't include any of the virus, so it can be repurposed because it's it's the very stuff of DNA, RNA, right? Because we have the basic genetic code of humans mapped, people don't understand that you think that, well, it's only been in the body for a year. There's they, They've done 100-year runs on different billions and billions of fake right? But imaginary agents, but with all the characteristics of we real humans. They've back-tested so, back the virus on humanity. Yes, they did. So and it they, sounds like you're just selling your, your optimism. You're, you're just basically selling a put on humanity. Instead of buying the call, you're, just sell, you're, 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 you're taking the pessimism and you're, and you're just selling that put and you go, you know what? You don't even know what you don't know. This, is, no, this has legs. No. No, 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 no. I no, I'm I'm buying a call. Are you crazy? It's like I am wildly optimistic on as long as our country remains ruled by the rule of law, as long as we have freedom of speech. And listen, there are agents today actively trying to make that not so. And you know, I'm not a very political person, but what I am is fiercely anti-authoritarian of whatever school you happen to belong to, the extreme left or the extreme right, they both want the same thing. Amen. They, want you to, they want you to shut up. <laughs> and, and as long as they can't make you or me shut up, as long as they can't make investors you know, go out and take risks, God bless, I'll be long this all day long. I'll have not only call options on it, I'll own the equity. And so He's I think- long. That, convexity the whole nine yards jam yeah well, absolutely but, but, i hear you but, <laughs> that's an oak he's, he, that's an oklahoma long he's long the stock and long the call yeah. 
<laughs> I love that joke. I haven't heard that one in a long time. Uh, it's totally good. <laughs> I, I had a friend who was like a master trader, and he ended up at, as one of the real se- senior people at one of the old uh, iBanks. And, and so I was asking him, I'm like, so did anyone ever really screw you in a trade? And he goes, yeah. He goes, there was this guy he always traded from, and he would always start with, well, I'm just a country boy, and I, I'm sure you're just going to take me to the cleaners. <laughs> <laughs> and of alert. course, that was the, that alert. Was the only alert, <clears throat> alert. alert. <laughs> <laughs> it's like when you have Honest John stop by, cut your spoons after he's gone. <laughs> so to to what extent do you think, though, that your your optimism was is either – you know, you're just sort of genetically programmed to be, to be optimistic. So when faced with negative information, you, you are just programmed to filter it through an optimistic prism and, or your, your, your life trajectory reinforced, you know, your, your natural predisposition towards optimism and there, and the interaction between the genetic predisposition and your life experience now allows you in fact it 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 only allows you to view the the, ex, the experience that you have and the information you see through this optimistic prism right like do you think that there's something that you no, decide I think you're going to be an optimist and and go read a few books and therefore and and learn how beneficial it is to be optimistic versus pessimistic uh, and turn it into an optimist or love to hear so, your thoughts on that yeah sure i i think that Obviously, is there a genetic component to it? Yeah. There's a genetic component to everything, right? But how much of one, there's still a lot of debate about that, right? How much of it was the environment you happened to be in turned on that gene? How much of it was the environment you uh, happened to, it's like books, right? If you grow up in a house, if you have a genetic uh, predisposition to read, but you wake up or you grow up in a house without a lot of books, your, your gene doesn't get turned on like somebody who grew up around a lot of books, okay? So I will stipulate you are correct there. Where I will not go along with you is to say that I'm in any ways like Panglossian about everything that's happening. Look, I, I've had many failures, many, and like high profile failures. <laughs> like we did a, we did an online company in 1999 called Netfolio and they, everybody was writing about it. Uh, and, uh, we got it wrong. And then the internet bubble collapsed and, and, and talk about compounding a problem. I had written a piece earlier that year called the internet contrarian and, and was talking about how overvalued everything was. Then what did I do? I started an internet company. <laughs> so, so, so that was a massive failure. So I think I think that you have to be open to the fact that you're going to fail. Not only is failure a possibility, it's a certainty. You you will fail at something if you're going to succeed in life. Listen, I've never met a super successful person who didn't have a lot of speed bumps. Let's be kind mm-hmm. and call them speed bumps. Now, to get back to your nature versus nurture, 
I don't know. Maybe, maybe it is my nature, genetics, that made me view failure as opportunities to learn. Yeah. As as opposed to, um, you know, as embarrassments that I'm going to be ashamed of for the rest of my life. So, is there a natural predilection toward pessimism and a natural predilection to optimism? Yeah, probably. But can you, through study, adopt the better argument, right? So I think if, let's just say it was 50-50, right? So so 50% of my genes came from my dad or my mom, who was an optimist, and the other 50% came from my dad, who was a pessimist. So I'm 50-50. And I read this, I read this book that I just mentioned to you at the beginning of infinity. And I pay close attention to that thing about optimism versus pessimism. And I'm kind of like, well, you know, the, the underlying points and facts here are such that it seems that the greatest progress for humanity and civilization is made when the, the, the most widely adopted attitude is one of failableism which is essentially, listen, everything's a hypothesis, a thesis. We got the best ones we have right now. And guess what? They've led to some pretty cool things. It doesn't mean that they are 100% correct. In fact, we can be fairly certain they're not. And we are therefore open to error correction as we go forward. And, and so a great way of looking at this is, so instead of making it sound all highfalutin, let me ask you a simple question. Would you rather live on an earth where everybody said when there was a meteor coming straight for earth and was going to obliterate life on the planet for everybody in a week, would you rather be with the guys saying it's God's will or would you rather be with the guys who said, thank God we studied this for the last 25 years. Thank God we have these nukes that is going to nuke this thing right out of the sky and save the world. Dude, I, I cried you. during Armageddon. You know, I'm human. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. But see, that puts, it in, that puts it in stark relief, doesn't it? Right? Because I... I I don't want to be with the guys who are saying, oh, it's the will of the gods, so we all die. I, I'm sorry. You know, that's when they couldn't figure anything out. Well, that was God's will. That was God's will. God did that. God did that. That's a bad explanation. And, and I'm not saying anything about people who are religious or not religious. I'm just saying that when the Enlightenment came along and we learned that we needed all these tools – and, you know, that we were going to choose truth as we saw it scientifically proven at, to the best of its ability. Well, wonder of wonders, here we are walking around with supercomputers in our shorts. So I'm on that team. Yeah. And, and you know, what, what this conversation has highlighted actually is that there are, I think, multiple dimensions of optimism and pessimism, right? Like so much of what you've described is sort of optimism about the human capacity for solving for, for problem solving and innovation right which you yeah. know 100% would would agree with there's another dimension of like 
the human propensity to drive towards good or evil or, you know, the the humanitarian, like a lot of the sort of risks that um, Yuval Harari has has identified as like, how does democracy evolve in in uh, during a period when machines are telling us what to think? Right. And, and when the algorithms that are getting better and better and we're interfacing with machines more frequently and. So we're supposed to express our views as as members of democracy, um, but when the machines are programming our views and and you know commercial interests are able to influence, those are the types of things that I think are, and then you know the incentives and and political alignments and all these types of things end up being like there's a techno optimism which I think is is I would find easier to get behind, and then there's sort of more of a humanitarian optimism that I think may be a bit more complicated, but the, 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 the uh, crowd is complaining about our philosophizing. So apparently we're, we're, uh, <laughs> yeah, oh, guys. are we getting, are we getting real, are we getting real time feedback? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, oh yeah. yeah. That's right. Exactly. Oh, I love it. Okay. So, so the crowd has spoken. Are you not entertained? Yes, exactly. <laughs> no, but I was going to say after we've reached the hour mark, I think we would be remiss to not even mention the the, the uh, supposed title of today's conversation, which was the evolution of the of investment management. So let's just maybe touch upon that briefly. Wait a second. A slight Who's, pivot. Is this our show or their show? I'm kidding. No, no, That's no, a good no, question. No. I, I'm not I even reading the comments, but I like you. I like it. <laughs> I do want to ask Jim, what, he thinks, what, does he, what does he think about what actually works on Wall Street today kind of thing? Brian so so um, I, listen, I think that we are in a, an incredibly um, just explosive period for both individual investors and for institutional investors. I think that we are beginning to understand a class of tools that has been available to us mostly in hype, but now in reality, and that we are able to begin seeing practical uses for a lot of these apps. So machine learning, AI, I was very skeptical about that for a long time because it was just like, Okay, sh show me what it can really do. And, you know, basically it was a really fancy decision tree. And, and not that I have any objection to a decision tree that can go through a, a billion different decisions in, in an hour. That's great. But they, they had not really refined it to the point where I think it is refined to now. We have some, some machine learning uh, folks on staff. And it's getting it's getting refined like anything. It's you've got to ask the right questions. Um, the problem that I have with decision, and this comes back to the philosophy that the audience so much. Hates, oh God, no! Uh, uh, it's it's the problem is, you know, they should pay attention to what we're talking about because linear thinkers have a problem with AI. Yep. Because because AI can tell us what and when. And it can't tell us why. I'm quite comfortable with that because that, that's the way I think. Most people are not. If the narrative is not attached to that, and of course they will attach narratives to everything, and they'll be bullshit, but people will believe that. And and but 
really deep thinkers are going to be like, mm, the machine learning isn't really giving a reason, is it? And if you're going to give them an honest answer, you have to say, no, it's not. So I think that there's that, that tool set. I think the fractionalization of things is good both for individual investors and for um, all investors, really. And then, you know, obviously, I'm going to talk my book here. And I think customization is the future. I believe so passionately in it that I'm willing to say that if you are an advisor and your client group is rich people, if you don't have the ability to customize their portfolios five years from now, you're not going to be in business for much longer. Because we took a small group on advice from, from, from some very smart venture capitalists. We didn't take any of their money, but we took a lot of their advice. Um, and, and they said, you know what? Take nine customers to begin with and then make it perfect for them. And I got to say, that was like the best advice I think we ever got because we would have gotten it wrong. What we figured out by making it perfect for this group of nine advisors were things that we thought were like low on the totem pole were number one. So tax optim optimization. It is not a trivial matter to be able to, at scale, tax optimize everybody's portfolio. We can do that at Canvas. That is the far and away, if you were just uh, taking a poll of like all of the users of Canvas, the end user, the, the wealthy person, that's the one that they love. Because you can generate anywhere between 75 and 125 basis points of what we call tax alpha, simply through the management. Doesn't matter what the market's doing, right? And then the other one that we would have sneered a little at, just to be honest, because we'd only seen it as all story, all hat, no cattle, as the Texans would say, uh, was ESG investing, right? And it's like, you know, we read all these things about it, but we weren't seeing the money. It's like, where's the money? And the money is the revealed preference, right? The articles are the stated preference. Yep. And, and the two are very often very different. So, but now... We're actually seeing that come in. And so our version of ESG is we're not going to lecture you about what your value should be. We, we have the tools so that we can make the portfolio reflect any of your values. So let's say you're kind of wacky and you think that, uh, that I don't know, drugs should be legal. Uh, you want to own more pharmaceuticals. You want to own some of the pot companies. Okay, we can do I'm that for you. Theme, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then, if you're if you're one of the if you're one of the more traditional, uh, like uh, climate change, the the challenge there is when you look at the mutual funds and the packaged products, the names that they have in there are not good names around climate change. We have because it's all customizable to you. We have the ability to just cherry pick. And we can get so far down by what kind of carbon footprint do they have? We can tell you what it is. Another one, women. So I've got a bunch of daughters. I've got a bunch of sisters. I like women an awful lot. And uh, they've taught me a tremendous amount. So I've, I think this is great. And I'm probably even going to have a portion of my 
uh, portfolio de dedicated to this, which is uh, le let's overinvest in companies where 20% of the either C-suite executives or board members are women. And here's another advantage that we have that other people don't have. A, when we were asked that, that list didn't exist. Now, here's something machine learning is very good at. So we got our guy on the phone from for machine learning, and we're like, there is no list showing 20% or greater female uh, C-suites or board membership. And he goes, when do you want it? And we're kind of like thinking, well, you know, if you could get it to us by the end of the month, this is the beginning of the month. He goes, you'll have it this afternoon. So we have the only list that I'm aware of. There could be other ones now. But we have the only list of all the companies that have 20% or greater women running the show. The point is, we have, I don't know, 52 separate things that we can break down ESG portfolios for you on that other people just don't have. And then, frankly, let's say you work for Google. You're going to go to any investment advisor who says, yeah, you got all that Google stock. I think we better double up on that and lever along into technology. If he's a good advisor or she's a good advisor, she's probably going to say, uh, we might want to immunize that Google holding. Easy. So my point is, after you've had this experience, and we've actually gotten this feedback, right? with our, our clients, which are registered advisors, right? Their clients are rich people. Um, and the feedback that they're getting is, I will never, ever buy a packaged product again. Why would you? Because, you know, we have one guy, I don't know whether you guys know Howard Lindzen. He's funny. And so when we, when, when, when we, uh, when we announced this, we just we did the what we called the S and P Howie, uh, and Howard only took out five stocks from the S and P, and he only took them out because he hated their guts. <laughs> <laughs> just just like idiosyncratically, just for did we lose him? Did we, I think we lost him. It was a great pose, though. I mean, if we had that to lose him, that laugh was the pose is the pose amazing. Yeah. Oh my god. I think I, I wonder if he kicked the cord on his computer or something. Could be, yeah. <laughs> oh no! Um, I I was dying to know what because he said that they would have gotten it wrong if they had to sort of guess what the priorities of the advisors would be or what the, were the priorities. Clients. And I'd love to know what, yeah, well, what did they think that they would Where's be? The top and then what the were the surprises? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, because I would have sort of assumed that tax that the tax optimization would have been would had have been to be top near the top yeah but it sounds like they yeah. they had not anticipated that totally um, agree. but um wow well i think i think the point on esg is one of the main main points of struggle i always had until um talking with uh, dave nadig and oh what's his name tim oh, canadian guy but it was it was really about the customization so i was like who's e who's s who's g are we speaking about and you know Notre Dame, who it's been mentioned a few times uh, on today's riff, is one of uh, one where you can get a clear identity on your ESG due to the Catholic nature of um, the institution. So there's some some religious connotations there, and then they have some other pretty thought well thought out anyway, well thought out from their perspective of values with respect to ESG. 
and that that makes an immense amount of sense and then you know rather than customize rather than buying a packaged product where you're buying an approximation of your values via somebody else's rules being able to sit down and sort of say well no actually here are my values here's where i'm willing to or here's where i'm insisting upon making changes is well i think i think it's a, such a misnomer right i mean they they this esg ends up being it's like ben hunt esg like it's it's yeah. it's a it's a meme it's not even a, yeah. a thing right like what it is it's sort of it's value expression right and so what right. you're allowing is i have all these values howard Lindzen loads five stocks who knows why mm-hmm. right but that's his he's he, whatever his value framework is drives towards really hating on these five companies. So you can express this particular idiosyncratic value through this customization. And you can obviously express all sorts of moral or ethical or, or other types of values and or economic values with um, like having a particular exposure to an industry or a, or a company. Um, you know, I had a, a long conversation with a very wealthy uh, client of ours just just earlier this week who had just bought spent a lot of money on a new home and, you know, questioning about cap weighted portfolios or diversified portfolios and what is the natural exposure to real estate and how to proxy that and how to hedge it or how to manage around it in, in a portfolio. So, I mean, these are the real problems. They're not problems, but challenges or idiosyncratic um, um, items that, that, investors want to navigate around and it's neat. Real estate is always in. tricky because if you're talking about your primary residence or even a, you know, a, a secondary home that you use quite a bit, you derive such utility from that. I mean, your, your primary residence, you, no question about it, but that it's, it's hard to think of it as exclusively an investment. Although of course you need to consider it within the context of shouldering the burden of, of mortgages and, 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 and taxes and all that. But I always find this conversation with my wife and just with friends in general, the, the, the real estate conversation, unless you're talking about real estate properties, which you can think of as a you know fixed income-esque component of your portfolio that has some inflationary protection aspects to it, it is always very tricky to think of your primary residence exclusively in the investment domain because it is, it's your home, right? It's where you raise your kids. It's where you And if you don't live there, where do you live, right? If you're not going to move, then you're just going from one price at a one home at a certain price to another home at the same price, right? So it's it's not an investment if you can't liquidate it at the end. And I guess you've got this home equity extraction uh, innovation, which which is which is helpful for sure. But um, the the other point is nobody nobody waxes a, a, a rented car. Right. There's a certain amount of ownership pride that yeah. comes with your your home ownership, which is to your point, Richard, you know, I'm going to I want to move a wall. Well, you, you can't. It's not your house. You're renting. And but I, there's both sides of that. Right. They, you know, certainly Toronto has had a pretty specific, a pretty spectacular run places like Australia, where the housing market has been has had a return vector that's uh, outstanding, plus the, the the ability to lever that. Um, and, and then I think people don't sort of factor in all the costs. I know that, you know, when, when I've owned property and I look at, you know, the, the, the amount of money that goes into improving the property, the interest rate costs, the taxation, uh, the upkeep, um, you know, people say I bought it at a hundred grand and I sold it at a million and I made 10 times my money over 30 years. Well, no, no, (laughs) we got to go back and add up the expenses. How many, how many additions were put on? How is the property maintained? 
how many times did you redo the bathrooms and the kitchens along the way? And, uh, and so it, it, it's usually a much more uh, reasonable rate of return when you factor all of that in. Um, but, you know, sometimes it, 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 certain areas have great runs and you get some. Well, Bob Schiller has, and, has gone back to the late 1800s and examined the return on um, home ownership and concluded that essentially after all of those ancillary costs that it basically keeps up with inflation and it lags right. investments yeah. in, in global equity markets. But, you know, as you say, right, um, different generations get lucky. Try to tell that to somebody in Toronto over the last 20 yeah. years. Gonna, and the world was vehemently disagree. I mean, the last two years <laughs> yeah, has been just kind of The last insane. all of the years. Right, right, Try, right. To, well, try right, to tell whatever. the kids of today that and they won't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> I had so many other questions that I wanted to ask. Yeah, Jim, I'm not sure it, it did. Uh, oh, this conversation could have gone gone on three, four hours. He's just such an interesting guy and such energy and passion. So that's we'll have to get him on again. Yeah, right. I, I mean, we 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 did a good job stalling. I mean, not not stalling, talking and waiting for his return over the last uh, several minutes. But I'm wondering uh, if there's any chance he's going to come back up. Maybe his wife just yanked the. The cord obviously. You said you'd be done it. by five, Jim. You, you're, you're done. I, you're, I timed dinner. Yeah, who knows? All, All right. right. Well, let's let's well, wrap it. And this is Riffs. Someone got a call at the happy hour. And that's had to right, go. right. He had to leave exactly. the bar. No questions yeah, asked. No, he said no he had got to go get cigarettes yeah. and he left. That's it. <laughs> that was like a, that <laughs> was a Matt Faber exit though, right? Yeah. Like uh, <laughs> the, the Irish exit. Yeah, it was pull the shoot. See you later. Yeah. Well, it, it, it you know before before we uh, wrap up and for the for the the three other people listening still, and besides the three other guys on the call, um, I, I think I just want to uh, um, make sure you know where to find our properties. Obviously, uh, like and follow and subscribe for the YouTube channel. You can find uh, Adam Butler at at Gestalt U. Uh, what are you, on Twitter? And then Richard, you're at our Ladderman. Um, That's right. Um, and then, uh, Richard, who's our our next guest? Because I think you've you've it's done the Juliet De Clerc, right? Actually, and she's a macro strategist, really interesting thinker. And she, uh, I was I listened to her recently. She is of the opinion that equities are by no means stretched, and this equity market has legs. And nineteen eighty two, baby. Yeah, so I'm I'm very curious to to get an update on her, her thinking and just to, to dig a little bit deeper into her general framework, uh, not just for our own you know uh, edification, but really I think for 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 some even investment purposes that we might gather uh, uh, some of the more important uh, signals and and, and uh, indices and, and and things that she looks at on a, on a regular basis that might inform her, her investment opinion. So. Well, I, think, I think it's it's a great it's a great challenge to so sort of the 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 you know Kathy Wood and Ark and Raul Paul and some of his thoughts lately are that this has a, a lot further to go, which challenges a lot of the sort of accepted dogma in the current uh, circumstances with respect to equity valuations and whatnot. So it, it's something to pay attention to. I think if if you're in the in the group that oh I'm not sure what's going to happen, so some people are you know I'm passive I'm just going to own the, the the premiums and that's that fine. Um, if you're a bit more active or you're or you have cash on the sidelines and you're waiting for some large correction, well it's good to hear the other side of the yeah the, the counterpoint of, of the counterpoint in order to uh, 
get that particular activating system um, subdued. And, yeah, the uh, funny thing able to make better logical decisions, I guess. Yeah, the funny thing is that uh, because of how you know investing and in, in finance and kind of the the basic principles that underpin our financial system have worked in a certain way for the last several decades. Mm -hmm. One of the phrases that people like to throw around to say that you know the 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 four most dangerous words in investing is this time is different. Mm -hmm. Except for when it actually is different, if, except for when you actually, actually are going through an inflection point. Yeah. I'm not saying that we are, but in, in, in the event that we are, and this goes back to a conversation with Jim about exponential versus linear thinking. And within a probabilistic framework, there is a possibility, probability that we continue into this technological quantum yeah. leap forward that provides you know things that we can't even imagine right now yeah. or can, can kind of get a glimpse of, but can't really grasp at yet and uh, provides with this massive tailwind for you know yeah. how many however many years I, I would offer that it's always different I mean technology is non mean reverting technology itself prices of the things that might provide technology can mean revert uh, but we are not going back to the printing press where we're you know typesetting yeah, so yeah, yeah. Th there's there's a constant grind forward in in technology, and that is that's pervasive across many industries, whether you're fracking and oil and all kinds of things. So it's not just the technology when we think of technology as bits and bytes and computers. It's technology across a grand uh, landscape of various um, services and products that we manufacture and use. So anyway, that that sounds. I, I look forward to next week. I guess this is it. Make sure that if you're out there and you're listening on YouTube, make sure you subscribe, write some comments. The same thing. Um, if you're listening to this after, you can find us on all the podcast venues, iTunes, Google, um, all of them. And uh, so uh, enjoy and where, wherever you're picking up your podcast as well. And we'll leave you to your weekend. Wait, Mike, wait. Yeah. Oh, wait. What? No, he's not coming back. No. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I just wanted Jim, to give it that Jim, extra. where have you been? Get over here. Thanks for joining <laughs> us today, folks. And uh, we look forward to seeing you next week. Yeah. Have a great weekend, guys. Cue the music. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at InvestResolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.